This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Hopefully, uh, if you guys can go back after the sermon uh, and, and look at, at some comparisons between that story from 2 Kings uh, and the story that we're going to read today. Um, there's some uh, interesting uh, comparisons you can make, things that are done differently, things that are handled differently, reactions that, that happen differently than, than how they happen uh, in our story today from Luke uh, chapter 7. Uh, but things that I don't have time uh, to do today, uh, even though I desperately want to, but I would keep you here late into the afternoon, uh, and I'm not permitted to do so um, by, uh, you know, your own backsides. There's a, uh, a long uh, adage that the preacher can only preach uh, as, as long as what the butt can handle. Um, and so, you know, we're all stuck in these seats. They're not necessarily the most comfortable seats. Uh, and so there's, there's only so much uh, that, that we can all handle in God's grace. Uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 7 today, uh, continuing our sermon series in Luke. And we're exploring the idea today of worthiness. Uh, the word worthy is going to be used twice uh, in our passage today, but it's really what this passage hinges on is this idea of worthiness. And as I thought about worthiness, um, I, I was you know, trying to think of examples of, of times in our lives when we're trying to make things that are worthy. Uh, and as some of you know, I taught eighth through 11th graders for two years in Kansas City. Um, so every day, I had like a total of 120 students that I'd see you know, various times for, for various things. And I taught Bible. Um, and in all honesty, I was unprepared uh, to be a teacher. Uh, I had not had a lot of teaching classes. I'd had a few. Um, and so I was learning things uh, in the school of hard knocks. Uh, did not have great classroom management skills. Um, learned a lot. And uh, thankfully, the principal was very gracious with me uh, in training me along. One of those things I had to learn was how important a rubric is. You guys remember what rubrics are? You know, there's like those things that are they're broken down into little sections and they show you like how many points you get for doing each thing. Because... Inevitably, um, it, even with a rubric, uh, here's what would end up happening when I assigned a project to a student or a group of students, right? Inevitably, one would come back and say, uh, Mr. Lutz, I don't understand why it is that I got such a low grade uh, on, on this project. Uh, did you not see uh, how invested I was into the art uh, and the colors and the design? Um, and I was like, yes, I did. That's why I gave you the maximum possible points in that category. But we also have to understand that this is an art class. And although I want to mix the disciplines and understand the, the main point of this project was, um, was, of course, yes, to showcase your wonderful artistic skills, uh, but was also to show me that you understood something about the Gospel of John. Uh, and you chose a story from 1 Corinthians. <laughs> you kind of missed the point of the project. Rubrics were necessary to uh, show uh, exactly uh, where weight uh, would be, what was important in this project, what the student should focus on. Uh, of course, it was my instructions, and you would hope, uh, you know, that eighth graders would just understand by context uh, what a particular teacher would want. Like, we kind of do better when we're adults. We kind of understand the person that's giving us the instructions, and we go, I think I know what they mean by this, even if I don't have a rubric to do it. Um, but surprise, uh, eighth graders struggle with that sometimes. I don't know if you've worked with a lot of eighth graders. Um, in this Bible class, not an art class, although the art was worthy to pursue, 
Art was worthy. It was beautiful. It could be a beautiful project that the student has made. Focusing on it alone allowed the student to miss the point of the project. And I wonder if in our Christian life, it is possible for us to focus on worthy things, but miss the point of the Christian life. To misunderstand the rubric, to be majoring on the minors instead of the majors. And so today we're actually going to see a correct example of this. We're going to see a correct example of somebody who focused on worthy things, but also didn't fail to miss the point. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. It comes from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This ends the reading of God's word, and it is authoritative to teach us what is worthy in his sight. May we see it by the power of his spirit today. Please be seated. So again, we are concerning ourselves today um, with whether in the Christian life uh, there might be many things uh, that are worthy to focus on, but by focusing on them alone, if we might miss the main point. So first, I just want to overview this story really quickly. Uh, because I'll just kind of be jumping uh, in between places. And so I kind of want to make sure we have the story in our minds. The story is about this centurion, right? And a centurion is a Roman soldier who's in charge of at least 100 men, but maybe hundreds of men. Um, He had a slave, and the slave was sick, but not just any kind of sick. He was sick to the point of death. Uh, And it says that he highly valued this slave. And we'll talk more about that in a second. The centurion then sends elders of the Jews. Now, it's difficult to know by by Luke's phrase here, elder of the Jews, exactly which groups he's referring to, because elders could be kind of um, a broad category. Uh, But nevertheless, it is somewhat surprising that this Roman soldier would be able to command respected Jewish leaders to earnestly petition Jesus. It doesn't say that they do it because they're bought off. Uh, It doesn't say that they do it because they're afraid, uh, but because they're genuinely petitioning his case. The leaders explain to Jesus why this man is worthy. He says he's worthy because he loves our nation and he built us a synagogue. And so Jesus goes with them. But before he can get to the house, so he's not talked to the centurion at all. This is all through messengers, right? The centurion sends his friends. Now, these are probably not Jewish. These are probably um, upper to upper middle class Roman citizens that are his friends. Um, He sends his friends to them 
with a message, and this message says that he is not worthy. And his explanation to why he is not worthy is enough to astonish Jesus. It says that Jesus marvels at what he says. And although the centurion and Jesus only ever speak through messengers, and although Jesus is never recorded as saying, I will, your servant be healed, like we read in some of our other healing passages, his friends, and it seems like the Jewish leaders as well, return to the house and they find the servant well. Now, the story hinges on this idea of worthiness. These leaders of Jews show up and they say, this man is worthy for you to listen to this request. And as Jesus gets closer, this man sends his friends and he says, I am not worthy. There might be worthy things that he had focused on, worthy things that other people could notice, and yet he could recognize that he was still lacking something. But before we get to what he was lacking, I want to focus on these four worthy areas because they are important. Um, and what exactly makes them worthy? Uh, there are certain things that our cultures reinforce uh, and reward. Uh, that's how we invest worth in them. Uh, there are certain sort of behaviors that we like to reward uh, and certain types of behaviors that we like to crush. Um, generally speaking, compassion, friendship, generosity, and humility are things that our culture actually loves to reward. I don't know if you remember, but at the start of the pandemic, John Krasinski, who plays Jim in the office, uh, started this news program on YouTube called SGN, Some Good News. And the whole premise of the show is that during this time where we're just receiving a bunch of bad news, what the world really needs, what's really valuable, what's really worthwhile is stories of compassion, friendship, generosity, and humility. Of course, they're rewarded in our culture, but the Bible also wants to invest these things with worth, right? The Bible talks about compassion, it talks about friendship, generosity, and humility. Um, and the centurion is going to show us in these passages that not only are all of these valuable in the Christian world, they are worthy to pursue, but to pursue them alone misses the point. There's something deeper that must be found, something deeper that must be recognized. So if we can work through these, these four things, then we'll look at the something deeper. The first worthy thing that we see in the centurion is compassion. The centurion cared enough about his slave. Now, slavery was a little bit different. It may not have been uncommon uh, for people to cherish their slaves. You can see Paul use this language um, in Philemon uh, as, he as he talks about slavery and how valuable they should be. Um, but it definitely wasn't required of a high-ranking Roman officer uh, to show compassion on his slave. There's, there's no requirement by any means um, in, in their culture to show this sort of compassion, and yet he did. And the Jewish leaders can understand that there is some importance to this. There's some value there. This man is worthy because he shows this sort of compassion. Jesus, too, affirms throughout the Bible that compassion is valuable. He himself showed compassion on the outcasts, on those who were lost. Luke will say a little bit later as we go through the Gospel of Luke uh, that one of Jesus' primary missions was to seek and save the lost. Jesus' compassion went so far that it went even to those who spit on him. 
I wonder if we value compassion as much as Jesus does. Um, I think we all can agree that compassion is a kind of a, a biblical virtue that we should all embody. And we might be compassionate uh, towards those who have something um, bad befall them, right? Somebody who falls ill and is close to the point of death, and we just, we have compassion because there's nothing they can do. But our compassion tends to run up a little dry when they've walked themselves into the situations that they're in. Some of you uh, were at our marriage seminar yesterday, um, and maybe we could say that compassion might be especially difficult in marriage. Years of having the same fight again, again, and again, and in that moment, compassion is called for. Love and respect. But I think in those times of doing the same thing again and again, having the same people harm us in the same ways, the same people um, uh, in some ways uh, accuse us and treat us poorly, uh, we think that our compassion needs to be restrained. Jesus' compassion was never restrained. Think of this story, uh, many of you may know, the story of the rich young ruler. Um, the, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he, he asks Jesus, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists off a bunch of the commandments. And he's like, great, I've done all these since I was a child. Like, I'm doing great. And it says there in that passage that Jesus looks at the young ruler with love, with compassion, and says, one thing you lack, sell all of your possessions and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler went away sad because he had many possessions. Despite Jesus knowing that this, his, his, this man's either greed or at least uh, comfort from having stuff uh, was going to prevent him from following Jesus, Jesus' compassion didn't decrease, but actually increased. He looked on him with love. And how much more true is this for us? You know, Jesus had never sinned, never experienced uh, that, that sort of uh, slavery to sin where we're even disappointed in ourselves because we go back to the same things over and over and over again. So how much more for ourselves uh, should we look at other people stuck in their sins with compassion? I'm not saying we enable them. Jesus never enabled people. But his compassion always increased. He never became hard-hearted never became jaded. Pursuing compassion is worthy. The centurion, though, not only pursues uh, com compassion, uh, he was also friendly. Uh, when his slave was sick, uh, he sent a group of Jewish leaders, and I mentioned this briefly. Um, it's shocking in some ways that he is able to command Jewish leaders to do this thing. Um, and he might be able to command it, but you would expect the text to be written a little bit differently. The way that the text reads is that these leaders um, were, in some sense, joyfully petitioning Jesus on behalf of this person. You've got to remember, Rome is an occupying force um, in and around Jerusalem in this time, in the land of Israel. They're aggressors. Although this man is an officer, a leading officer in an aggressing army, he was apparently friendly enough to have made connections with high-ranking Jewish officials that hated his presence there. Connections so amicable that the Jewish leaders would sing his praises. Tell of his love for their people, verse 5. This is not just a worldly attribute that we might notice, that being friendly is good. Jesus, too, is described as being friendly, specifically a friend of sinners, inviting himself over to the homes of those who've offended the sensibilities of religious people, 
Jesus was so friendly that even when Jesus was on trial, uh, the judges at the time, the scribes, uh, the Pharisees, um, and the chief priests, they were looking for any testimony about him. And in Mark 14, it says that they couldn't find any. <laughs> like, just think about this for a second. They're doing a trial in the middle of the night, um, try, trying to find someone that can accuse Jesus of doing something wrong. And everybody that's coming forward is like, he's actually a pretty friendly dude. Are we friendly with those who view us as oppressors, who might spit on us? Jews didn't like the Romans, and yet there's this centurion officer of at least 100 Roman soldiers um, who, who was definitely perceived as a foreign occupant of Jewish land, uh, and he was still able to garner friendships with Jewish leaders, friendships so genuine that they could petition Jesus on his behalf. And I wonder if we work towards having friendships with people who hate us and what we stand for. There are probably plenty of people in your workplace, plenty of people in your family, plenty in our communities who think that Christianity is a foreign oppressor who doesn't belong in the world. And I wonder what it would look like for us to genuinely build friendships with these people. Again, just like compassion, I'm not talking about enabling, I'm not talking about uh, capitulating any of our values or downplaying uh, anything that the Bible says. I'm talking about being a people that are marked by building friendships. That when the time for accusations to come, they struggle to find something. Friendliness is worth pursuing as well as compassion. There's a third thing uh, that this centurion uh, is praised for pursuing, and that is his generosity. He had built, or at least contributed to the building, or in addition to, a synagogue in verse 5. Generosity is a worthy thing to pursue. The scriptures command it again and again, and Jesus, in his own way, uh, was also very generous. Uh, he didn't have a lot of money to speak of, uh, but he fed thousands of people. He gave them his time. Even in this story, whatever he was doing in that moment, he was willing to be redirected towards this centurion. He gave of his time and of his energy and of his day. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. Many of these are ways that might be unique to Jesus, uh, unique ways that Jesus can give generously. And so I wonder what it looks like for us to be marked by generosity. What's truly amazing about the centurion's generosity is that he had no business being generous to his people. I've already announced how the relationships would have been perceived. Um, as a Roman, he's probably not really big on whatever it is that the Jews are worshiping. And yet he's generous enough to contribute to their causes. And I hope you start to see now how these are all kind of connected. The compassion, the friendliness, the generosity, and as we'll see in a second, humility. They all kind of come together as a package deal. I wonder if we are genuinely generous with people, even people that are radically different from us. Do we donate towards their causes? And even if we're not speaking about finances, are we charitable people with things that we don't understand? Or usually when things that we don't understand come to us, is our first response a little bit of uh, ruffled feathers and, and, um, or we get hot and bothered? Are we charitable people? 
compassion, friendliness, generosity, all of these things were worthy. And there's one more thing we're going to see from the centurion, and that was that he was extremely humble. Now, at first, it might seem that because he sends other leaders and his friends to talk to Jesus, that he's like uh, too high and mighty to go talk to Jesus himself. Uh, But that's not what Luke says. Uh, In verse 7, it says that he couldn't presume to come to him. Uh, So it seems here, and the the text doesn't imply otherwise, uh, that there would have been some sort of presumption to have the centurion come to Jesus. And so he sends others. His humility was a worthy thing to pursue. It betrayed a certain sort of dignity, uh, just like presumption might betray a certain sort of arrogance, a certain sort of pride. Jesus, too, says humility is worth pursuing. Um, He lives this out in his life from his birth to his death. He not only submitted to the will of the Father, but experienced maybe one of the most uh, humble lives Uh, any of us would would want to live, right? Uh, Born to poor parents in a stable because there was no room in the inn and no money to purchase their way in. Um, He was a refugee at one point, fleeing uh, murder from a tyrant. Uh, He uh, made a career as a blue-collar worker uh, and died the death of a criminal, though he had committed no crimes. Something interesting about humility for me uh, is that it seems that we're, like, supposed to get better at humility as we get older, But as I reflect on it, I'm not so sure that I've actually gotten more humble than I am that I've just found better ways to hide my pride. I've gotten better at maybe feigning humility in order to play the part. And I wonder if we feign humility uh, in order to hide from what true humility really means. Because I looked up a definition uh, just to make sure that I was clear on what humility actually means. And it just means thinking of others as better than yourself. Now, uh, maybe it's my, like, Midwestern upbringing, but I think sometimes I read that, and, you know, I hear that as, like, oh, well, then what I need to do is really, like, berate myself, you know, like, I need to belittle myself. But that's not really what the definition says. Uh, It just means that you think of others higher. I don't need to belittle myself in order to to make them higher. I just need to think of them as higher, because they are. It's what humility is. These virtues are all worth pursuing. Compassion, friendliness, generosity, and humility. Uh, These might even be considered Christian virtues, but we'd all understand that these aren't uniquely Christian virtues, right? I mean, like, the world can prize these same things, compassion, friendliness, generosity, and humility. And in some sense, they are worthy to pursue. But to pursue them alone means that you might be missing the point. So what is the point? Well, it says in this passage that Jesus marvels in verse 9. This is one of only two instances where it says that that, where they use this word for marvel and amazement. Two times uh, in the whole New Testament uh, where Jesus marvels at something. He marvels at this man's faith. And then in Mark chapter 6, he also marvels at the unbelief of Israel. Two things that Jesus marvels at. He marvels at belief and he marvels at unbelief. In our passage today, Jesus didn't marvel at the man's compassion, friendliness, generosity, or humility. He marveled at the centurion's faith. And what was the centurion's faith in? Submission to the authoritative word of Jesus itself. You see, this centurion has this long, drawn-out argument about why he's not worthy in verses 6 to 8. 
And it's all about authority, about how he too is a man set under authority. And just as a side note, uh, it's fascinating to hear that he like starts as a man set under authority versus uh, his own uh, authority that he has other people. He'll mention it later, but it's just another aspect of humility. He starts um, as a man set under authority. He understands that the one with the ultimate authority has the authority to speak something and it is done. There's no need to have to go check on it. There's no need to have to go see if it was done right. The one with the ultimate authority speaks and it's done. Here's the reality. You can be the most compassionate, the most friendly, the most generous, and the most humble person there is. But if you focus on these things alone and you cannot submit yourself to the authoritative word of Jesus himself, you've kind of missed the point. Like the student focused on the wrong section of the rubric, the rubric might come back with that little section marked, nice work here, but you've kind of missed the point. So what does submission to the authoritative word of God mean? Well, you could think of it in soldier categories. This man is a soldier, right? And to boil it down, it means that he has all of the authority in your life. If Jesus is the utmost authority, uh, what he says gets done. When he speaks, it is so. He gets to decide what to do. He gets to decide who you are. You don't. It means that he tells you what is true about your world, what is true about yourself, how desperately you need saved. He gets to tell you what is to be prioritized. He tells you to go or come or do this or do that, and you do it. Remember, we said uh, that these things, compassion, friendliness, generosity, humility, they're Christian values, but focusing on them alone kind of misses the point. Uh, the point of being a Christian, Christian, is that we follow Christ himself. We are submissive to his word. And by the world's standards, maybe we are uh, exceptionally worthy. Uh, maybe by our own rubrics, we could come back with a legitimate good try on compassion, friendliness, generosity, and humility. Although I think if we were honest with ourselves, I think most of us would look at those four categories and be like, I've not really done those things. But what about the main point of the rubric? What would the main point of the rubric come back with? That submissive to the authoritative word of God. Well, there'd be zero marks for anyone. And that's the story of all of humanity. Ever since the beginning pages of this book, unsubmissive, rebellious, chooses their own way, makes their own definition, misses the point. Sometimes we as people like to think we're pretty good, right? Man, I'm checking some boxes. I'm compassionate, generous, I'm humble. And you know, this centurion uh, was so good that people noticed. But honestly, um, in comparison to others, we might be able to uh, recognize some degree of improvement over the others. But in all four of those categories, in comparison to Jesus, all of us don't even make the scale. The Bible is pretty clear on this. It says, you know, um, a man uh, will rarely ever die for his friends. Um, even a good man, uh, one probably is not going to die for. Jesus died for his enemies. 
Compared to Jesus, we don't even make the scale. Uh, If Jesus was the example of what humanity should have been, then man, we've messed it up. And even if we would have checked all of those boxes uh, with compassion, even if we would have been those, those people in history that we can all think about who are the most compassionate, the most generous, and the most humble, uh, we still would have all failed miserably on submission to the Word of God itself. Now, here's what I wonder. In this story of the centurion, you know, uh, they never talk face to face. And I wonder if you've ever thought that if you could just see Jesus, your faith would never falter again. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought, if I could just see him, if I could just ask him this, if I could just finally get an answer to this question, I'd be there. I'd be done. I'd be sufficient. The centurion never meets Jesus face to face. And he says that the authoritative word of God alone is sufficient for me. Although we may not meet Jesus face to face before we die, like the centurion, we can rest assured that the authoritative word of God is sufficient for us. Now, why would we think that it's sufficient? I'd like you to think about what this authoritative word says about your rubric. His authoritative word when it pulls out your rubric, says, in Christ, A plus, completed in full, completely submissive to the authoritative word of God. And not only that, but exceedingly compassionate, a friend of sinners, exceedingly generous, exceedingly humble. The rubric now says, well done, my good and faithful servant. When we listen to the authoritative words of Jesus, his authoritative words said, I did this for you. All the way back to our catechism question of why must Christ die? It's for you. When you look at the authoritative words of Jesus, you hear the words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When you hear the authoritative words of Jesus, it says, of all the sheep that you have given me, I have lost not one. The authoritative word of God looks at you in your subpar, uh, missing the point Christian life, and the authoritative word of God says, worthy in Christ. Worthy not because you correctly divided up the group project, and you did 5%, and Jesus did 95. Because Jesus did it all. And he said with his authoritative words, my friends, I've come to rescue you. I've come to make you worthy. Compassion, friendliness, generosity, and humility, these are all worthy things to strive for. They are all good and right to pursue. but, But to pursue them without submission to the authoritative word of God itself misses the point because only in Jesus is all of that pursuit actually worth it. Only in Jesus can we know that our worth is secure. In his authoritative word, we hear that our rubric isn't lacking. And in his authoritative word, we hear that our worthiness will never be questioned again because he is sufficient. Amen. Jesus uh, wanted us to understand that his authoritative word is sufficient. 
Uh, but he also knew that that centurion longed to see him face to face. And what's fascinating about that story uh, is that Jesus walks away and goes about his business. <laughs> um, we're never recorded about whether or not they, they, they meet each other. Uh, it seems uh, that Jesus went to go about his other business because he marveled at this man's faith, that the authoritative word was sufficient. But Jesus knew what the centurion wanted. And the reason that we can know this is because uh, the last time that Jesus ate a meal with his friends, he instituted this supper. And he said, this will not be the last supper. I will come back for you. I am worthy enough and I came to make you worthy, and we will all sit at a table together face to face. Rest assured that my authoritative word is enough, and he wanted us not only to hear that word, but taste that word. And so theologians um, for a long time have said that this meal that we practice here uh, is, 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 is not so much um, you know, partaking of just bread and wine uh, in pure remembrance, but it's actually the word of God tasteable to us. It's, it's not just exercising our minds, but also training and assuring our bodies that although we may be quickly approaching death, that this is not the end, that he will come back, resurrect us, and we will all sit around a table again face to face with God. So that night when he was with his friends and he was betrayed, he was sitting among his disciples for dinner, and he wanted them to know that this promise that he was going to come back because they're about to see him die, you know, um, that he was going to come back. And he'd already promised it to them with his words, but he wanted them to taste it. And so he took the bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, and he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name, now give it to you. And he said, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. This table is for all who submit their lives to the authoritative word of God himself. If that is not true for you, if you're not sure uh, that Jesus has the authoritative word or that you should submit to it or you just don't want to, um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm glad that uh, you, you can hear these words and explore and read his words. Um, and I think that if you continue investigating, you'll find that they are more authoritative and more faithful than you ever thought possible. But I would ask you to refrain from this section of our service um, and to participate uh, in this with full knowledge that by it we are declaring that our lives now belong wholly and entirely to Christ. In a moment, um, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down uh, the center aisles uh, and head to these two st serving stations on my right and my left. Um, the server will hand you the bread. There's a gluten-free option. If you require, just notify your server. There's also red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are so good in your promises to us. And you are so exceedingly worthy in how you show us compassion and friendliness, and generosity and humility, but also because your authoritative word gives us promises that we struggle to believe. 
we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to hear it again and again, week after week and day after day as we turn to your word again and again throughout our entire lives. But we also thank you for this meal that you have instituted to remind us that we might taste and see that you are good. I ask that you might do that for us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.